Hello, welcome to Talking in Vain, the Infusion Nurses Society podcast entitled What I Wish You Knew About Me, Nursing the Older Adult, Part 2. My name is Dawn Barrent. I'm the Infusion Nurse Educator for the INS. Today's guest, Dr. Suzanne Purvis, has been a geriatric clinical nurse specialist for 20 years. She obtained her Master's of Science in Nursing degree and Master's Certificate in Gerontology from Georgia State University and her Doctor of Nursing Practice from University of Minnesota. Suzanne is published in the areas of geriatric nursing competency development, use of the electronic health record in geriatrics, and dementia care education. She is currently a clinical nurse specialist for Beaumont Health in Royal Oak, Michigan. Welcome to the podcast today, Suzanne. We are so happy to have you here with us. Suzanne, let's set the stage for our discussion today by reviewing a few of the statistics on aging Americans that you shared in our last discussion. Yes, the demographics um, show definite aging of our population just like in every country around the world. Um, The numbers that we look at especially have to do with the rate of the increase, the total number of older adults, and of course changes in our average life expectancy. As far as the increasing rate of individuals, a lot of the focus on that are the baby boomers. 10,000 baby boomers reach age 65 every day, according to the Pew Research Center. Wow. Yes, there are 76 (laughs) million of them. Okay, okay. So that's where we're at. We're right in about, I guess, the middle of them. Now, as far as the total number of individuals greater than 65, we also look at that number, and that has increased greatly. If you look back at 1960, only 9% of the population was over the age of 65. And currently, well, I guess the data is from 2015, 15% of the population approximately are over the age of 65. Mm -hmm. So we see that increasing as well. Yes. And then one number that we as healthcare providers are really um, kind of focusing on is the oldest old. Because when you look at over 65, that's such a huge group, it's hard to really... Um, Look at that as a group. It doesn't help much because they're so different. But if you look at the age, uh, individuals over the age of 85, that's the fastest growing portion of our population. And it's expected to triple by 2060. And those are the people that are more frail, have more health care needs. So that could really impact health care. And the final thing we look at when we look at demographics has to do, of course, that there are increasing numbers of people that are living to older age. For example, the life expectancy. So it has increased from 68 years in 1950. It's now around 79 years. And um, we're getting more. That's getting to be a bigger and bigger group. Okay. So these population statistics, the changes in the rate of individuals turning 65, the total population, and the increased life expectancy, all of this creates an opportunity or a challenge for healthcare professionals to provide care to these special populations. Yes, it does. Okay, so let's change and move our discussion then into what we're going to talk about today. Some of the health differences, particularly as it relates to nursing care. Tell us about the problem of dehydration in older adults and why this problem exists and why it affects this population differently than other age groups. Yes, I think dehydration is an important thing to talk about because um, we tend to think of that as a not-so-serious problem. You're a little dehydrated, you drink water. 
Um, but it can be a problem for older adults, and as they get older, those aging changes increase the risk that they will be dehydrated. There are two changes that really kind of impact this and increase their risk. One is the decreased sense of thirst, mm. and they've done studies where they compared younger people with older people. There's a Sentinel study that was done in the 60s, and um, in geriatrics is frequently quoted. And when they um, held back fluids and then they provided the fluids, all the younger people were able to drink, and within an hour or two they replenished their fluid levels. All the older adults took at least 24 hours. Oh, okay. And part of it is they don't have that drive to drink, but there's another piece to it. And another piece to the dehydration puzzle for older adults is that they have less muscle, more fat. Now, most of your body water is in your cells, particularly your muscle cells. People who have more muscle tend to have more water than people who have more fat. And since older people have less muscle, they have a baseline of less water, even normally. Then mm -hmm. they get sick and they stop drinking, and that dehydration can become quite severe. Okay, okay. So that leads me very nicely into the next question I wanted to ask you, and that's about the practice of hypodermoclysis or the subcutaneous administration of isotonic saline solution. Um, you know, sometimes we can use that for mild to moderate dehydration. Is this a type of infusion that we should consider for older adults? And if so, do you recommend using hyaluronidase to facilitate that dispersion and absorption of the fluid? Okay, so hypodermoclysis, it was an accepted method back in the beginning of the 1900s. Over time, it was misused, not just for isotonic fluids, but for replenishing with hypertonic solutions, people with uh, missing electrolytes. And it didn't work well there, and that's where the problems came in, so it, they stopped using it. But in recent studies, they found if you use it correctly that it's um, pretty effective and easy to use. Um, there was a randomized trial done by the journal, and it's published in the Journal of the American Geriatric Society, um, 2003. And they looked at that sub-Q isotonic fluid administration and found it easy, well-tolerated by older adults, and especially for those that are confused or you're having trouble finding a vein. Mm. So um, as far as dehydration is concerned, and we know that's a problem, in the past a lot of nursing homes had to send all these older people to the emergency room to replenish fluids. So this is another method you could try, um, and it, like I said, it doesn't um, involve accessing a vein. Right, right. The hyaluronidase, now that you mentioned, that's not required, but you can use it. It's an enzyme that increases permeability of the tissue, um, so the fluid is, uh, you can flow it a little faster, and you tend not to have edema in the tissue that way. Okay. Okay. So it does facilitate uptake, but it's not right. necessary if we run no. the fluid slow enough. Right. And if you're using it just for fluid rep replenishment, you're doing it slowly, it's not necessary. Um, so some places don't use it, and that's fine. Okay. Okay. So are there circumstances when we should not attempt hypodermoclysis? Uh, yes. Uh, the first one, of course, is anytime you want to do a rapid infusion, it's probably not the, the first choice. Um, so emergency situations, it's not um, indicated for use then. The other time is you have to be careful about there being an adequate sub-Q fatty layer. Um, so very 
debilitated or frail older adults that might not work so well with. And like I mentioned, you don't want to use it with hypertonic solutions. Okay. Okay, very good. Okay, so now that we've discussed the option of subcutaneous infusions for hydration, let's switch over and let's talk a little bit about intravascular infusions. Now, as individuals age, you know how the skin kind of takes on a different appearance and becomes almost transparent sometimes? Can you describe the changes in the the integumentary system that happen as we grow older? Certainly. As, you know, when you look at that skin transparency you're describing, that's due to the thinning of the epidermis, the surface layer. And like I said, older adults have a decrease in that fluid-to-body mass ratio. They have less collagen and less subcutaneous tissue. And then added to that, the sweat cells decrease and are less efficient. And so then you have drier skin. So it's thinner, more transparent, and drier. Mm-hmm. And then finally, they um, some older adults, and again, you have to make sure that you understand that no older adult has all the aging changes, and some have more of them than others. Um, so it's important to know them, but know that you're not going to see them in every older adult. Mm-hmm. But some will have a decreased ability to perceive pain um, due to fewer sensory nerve endings, so that they won't. If there's something wrong, they might not feel it. So oh. it's severe. Okay. So these changes with the integumentary system, how do they impact intravenous or subcutaneous infusions? Okay. So if it's transparent and drier and thinner, it's going to be more easily damaged. So we have to be very careful with older adult skin. It's more fragile and depending on how many of these aging changes they have. Also, that loss of that subcutaneous tissue we were talking about, it can cause those veins to roll when you're attempting to access it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it can make it difficult to hold it still. I've I've been there and done that. They, they <laughs> kind of just slide one side and then to the other, yeah. yes. And then finally, those nerve endings that we talked about, if they have a decrease in those sensory nerve endings, They won't notice the pain. So if it infiltrates, it could get pretty bad before they'll notice it. If they don't see it, they might not even tell you about it. So now you've got damaged skin, maybe even wound and tissue damage um, to heal. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So how can an infusion nurse mitigate those challenges? We need to be very sure that we use the smallest peripheral catheter that you can and try to find areas where there's more supportive tissue, which is the subcutaneous fat, to mm-hmm. hold that catheter in place. For instance, the back of the hand probably in a frail person, older person's probably not the best choice. Right, right. And then, you know, I think, you know, when you're talking about that loss of sensory uh, function, mm-hmm. it would almost seem like we need to keep a little better watch on some of those infusions as well so that we're catching that infiltration sooner for them just in case they're not feeling it. Exactly. Um, So you just need to watch them real closely and see how it's flowing and how they're doing with it. Also keep in mind if there's any memory loss, they're going to forget that catheter is even there and they're not going to be managing it themselves or watching it, you know. Right. And they might not feel it. You may not know the older adult has memory loss. Mm-hmm. Sometimes we have a diagnosis, sometimes we don't. So you just need to be careful and make sure you're watching it. Right, right. They they kind of tend to um, pick at things, too. They, um, they're they surprised to find something on their skin, and they'll, they'll kind of 
uh, well, they'll help you take it out <laughs> occasionally. Yeah. Especially if they, like I said, they don't forget, forget it's there. They don't know what they're, they're picking at it absent-mindedly. Right. They may not right. be thinking, I'm going to take this out. Right, right. They, it, they might not know what they're doing, sure. So, Suzanne, you know, it's really difficult to talk about older adults without somehow addressing Alzheimer's disease. There are so many of us who have had parents or grandparents, neighbors, just someone in our lives who have experienced this disease, and maybe we've already lost loved ones to this disease process. Do you have any new research or anything you can share with our listeners about Alzheimer's disease? Yes, and there's even um, some that are very pertaining to infusion therapy. Um, They're putting a lot of money in Alzheimer's research now because they know those numbers are rapidly increasing, and Alzheimer's is such a terrible disease because it occurs over so many years. Um, So they're putting a lot into it, and several of these companies are competing now to try and get the first treatment out there. Mm. And several of these treatments involve infusions. Uh, One of them is from Eli Lilly. And what these infusions are, they um, destroy the amyloid plaques. They are monoclonal antibodies, Mm -hmm. and they're delivered by infusion. Sure. Okay. And those plaques that we were talked about in school, you were probably taught that they show up between the nerve cells in the brain of people with Alzheimer's and um, basically destroy the nerve cells in the brain. Yes, one of the hallmarks of Alzheimer's disease, right? Exactly. So this one drug that Eli Lilly, um, they've already run it through two clinical trials, um, and they didn't do well, um, but the researchers looked at their numbers. This was a monthly infusion, and what they found was that it didn't do do well reversing memory loss that was far into the later stages of Alzheimer's. But they thought the numbers looked better with people with early memory loss or increased risk Mm -hmm. to develop it. Okay. So in the third stage, um, they're doing clinical trials with people who either have very mild um, memory loss or they're at risk for it. Okay. And they increase the dose. Um, But Eli Lilly's not the only one. Um, Biogen has an infusion. Theirs is giving weekly. Okay, okay. And it supposedly does the same thing as far as um, destroying those amyloid plaques. They found that if they wait too long, the damage is already done. They can't reverse it. Right, they can't reverse. Okay, okay. Mm-hmm. So they're doing these phase three trials, and we'll have to see how they go. Um, but um, then there's another drug. I think it's Roche has it, and it's a sub-Q drug. Oh, okay, okay. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So if these medications become available after the research trials, how might this impact the world of infusion? Well, this could be a big deal. Um, of course, my first concern when I heard about these was that it's an infusion, and they're increasing the doses. And like I said, that one drug has to be given weekly. It could be expensive. Mm-hmm. So I guess I wonder, since most older people have Medicare or Medicaid, um, how we'll pay for this, Okay. Um, especially if they have to have them regularly. Okay, yeah. And the other thing I was concerned about is how are we going to figure out who to give it to? And this means nursing is going to have to really step up and help because 
if it only works early on, we're not real good at um, we can diagnose it eventually once we see the decline, but we're going to need to get people earlier if that's the only time these drugs work. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, so, so it's I wondered about tricky, that. tricky to figure out what what population is is having actual Alzheimer's type uh, mm-hmm. memory loss. Okay, and you know, aren't there quite a few people with Alzheimer's disease? I mean, this this could be a huge population for infusion centers to manage. Yes. You're talking about a large number of people. And um, the fear of Alzheimer's, everybody's going to want this treatment. I mean, we're going to have to figure that out. But, yeah, the numbers and where are we going to do it? Are you going to go to their house? Are they going to come to the infusion center? All that would have to be figured out. Okay. Okay. Well, we'll stay tuned. We'll see how those trials go. And um, Mm -hmm. I'm very sure that we'll see a lot more in the future um, because, we need to work on this. All right. Yep. So, Suzanne, today we want to um, end our discussion talking about our title, and that is What I Wish You Knew About Me. In our last discussion, we talked about how older adults sometimes feel stigmatized and they're reluctant to communicate openly um, when they go into their healthcare system, even their own clinic setting. Um, today, again, I'm going to ask you to tell us something that older adults wish their healthcare professionals understood better? The thing I hear mostly from older adults and their families and their caregivers is being stigmatized for hearing loss or mild memory loss. But even if they have one of these, that doesn't mean they're not going to be involved in setting up their care plan and that they're not capable. Um, and older adults do pinpoint healthcare professionals in particular, um, that they feel um, they're often treated as children or like they can't participate. So we just need to be aware of that, that that's how we're coming across, and that we need to understand if they're not catching on to what you're saying, can they just not hear you? That doesn't mean that they're not smart or not capable. Mm -hmm. Um, Even mild memory loss, uh, most of the time people can participate. Sure, and be be an active part in their plan of care. Right. I think advocating for anyone involves you really understanding them. I saw a quote somewhere, and I tried to look it up. I'm not sure where I saw it, but it said, you can't advocate for someone you don't understand. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I I think we need to make sure that we understand where the older adult is coming from um, so we can advocate for them. Very good, very good. Well, let's wrap up today's discussion with a patient story. Um, In our last discussion, you talked about an older gentleman who um, was hospitalized, and on the day before his hospitalization, he had a hole-in-one in in the golf course, (laughs) at the golf course. Um, Do you have another story for us today? Yes, I do. And, uh, you know, we were talking about advocating for someone, and so I want to talk about that and how you understand someone or you can misunderstand someone. And there was an older man who was admitted he had failure to thrive. He had a cognitive impairment as well and a speech problem, so he had trouble talking and explaining himself. But the staff kept saying that he was refusing cares, and any time they tried to do anything or approach him, he would kick them. Um, So they were figuring out what to do with someone who was combative and could injure them. 
Now, when we looked closer at the situation, um, not only did he have speech difficulties, but he had had a stroke in the past and was weak on the left side. Um, and so what we tried to explain to the staff is that, yes, he was kicking you with your, his right leg. That's the only thing he could communicate with. He couldn't talk. Um, he was weak and really couldn't walk. So when he got frustrated, he would kick. And that really helped the staff to understand that he wasn't trying to attack. He was trying to communicate. So that was he was using his only means. He wasn't able to write, wasn't able exactly. to talk. He was able to move that one leg. Right. Okay. And once we changed the way we looked, when we realized that, we changed the way we looked at it and perceived it, we were able to work with him. And next thing I know, he's up at the nurse's station sitting there watching everybody. He he did much better when we understood that when he kicks, to he's trying to tell you something. Oh, that's a wonderful story. So that's that's one where that gentleman's communication in the healthcare setting was blanketed or limited by a number of physiologic problems, and the nurses had to learn to hear, quote-unquote, they had to hear him differently to meet his yes, needs. Yes, I love that, yes. Yeah, yes. wow. Well, Suzanne, thank you so much for being with us here again today on Talking in Vain. We certainly appreciate your clinical expertise and your experience in the uh, field of geriatric nursing. Um I'm going to uh, remind our listeners now that the INS offers a great reference entitled Policies and Procedures for Infusion Therapy of Older Adults. This is the third edition, and it correlates with the INS Infusion Therapy Standards of Practice that was published in 2016. And if you're interested in learning more about that reference, you can find more information on the INS website. And this concludes another episode of INS's Talking in Vain. <laughs>